0: Cro-Talk, 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 Film Squawk,
1: St. Maud, written and directed by Rose Glass, 2019. A fanatical Christian convert makes it her holy mission to save the soul of her dying patient. Greetings from our homes to yours. Whether you're new to Crow talk or a seasoned listener, you're joining us during a singular time in 21st century history. As you're critically aware, coronavirus has rerouted normal life, tipping everything expected on its head. This podcast is no exception. Instead of recording season three episodes from our studio at Western Washington University, we will be podcasting from our couches and remote workstations. We will use headphones with tiny microphones as dogs bark outside and our partners quietly bring us tea. Just as the quality of our production must shift, so has the dynamic of film viewing. So, Welcome to our Season 3 series, streaming in the time of COVID, where we will reflect on the experience of viewing, share yays and nays, squawk our opinions, and consider takeaways, things we want to remember moving forward about this film, or film in general. Here we are, ending where we plan to begin. Oh <laughs> my gosh. That is <gasps> hilarious. <gasps> Right. So back at the dawn of the pandemic, you know, when we were stacking our season slate, planning for season three, A24's titillating trailer for St. Maud had just released, like maybe at the end of the year, December-y. And we were obsessed. Do you remember?
2: Um, the mm-hmm. first time I saw the trailer was at the Art House Convergence Conference. Very cool. Stacey and I were drooling.
1: And I mean, because it's gorgeous. It's it sucks you right in. That's mm-hmm. trailer of the year. And it was originally going to release, whatever, March, April, and that's when we start our new seasons, right? So at that point, we had no idea what streaming in the time of COVID would actually entail. And none of us imagined that this film would then be delayed indefinitely, (laughs) and then finally released to paid streaming an entire year late. What a great example of what this pandemic has (laughs) created for film. Truly.
2: What would that be exactly? Like a holding pattern?
1: Yeah, the holding pattern, <laughs> yeah, delayed releases. This is a really important film for for Rose Glass. I, I know that she's said that she thought it was going to be very small, but still getting to have your film released theatrically after it's well-received at
2: at festivals, it kind of seems like the point, right? I mean, totally. even the streaming service it's available on has like many very obscure I can't say all of the things on Epics were titles I haven't heard of because I don't think I looked through their entire catalog. But like everything on their home screen, were it was titles I was unfamiliar with. What is
1: this? I am interested to see if Saint Maud will be picked up by a more prominent streaming service in the future. But A twenty four obviously had reasons for for the limited theatrical release and in the UK, I believe, and then choosing Epics for the paid-for-viewing platform. I don't know. It's just, I think that it speaks directly to just some of those what-now uh, situations and and releases and theatrical details that we've just encountered all year long. Totally. And in that anticipation, as our last film to review for the 2020 filmic year, I'm interested in yays and nays, specifically for St. Maud. Rose Glass's directorial debut, so yays.
2: My yay was informed after... I didn't have a yay and nay after watching the film. I was kind of just, like, flat a little bit. I think part of it is because I was so excited to see it. It took a long time to come out. We'll talk about more of the reasons why later, but I read an article in Vogue, and it discussed how it's a film, a horror film without the male gaze. And I thought that was a really amazing thing to point out. So that is my yay.
0: My yay would be the metaphor that is the center of this film. It's something that we've seen a lot in horror film over the past decade, I think. So I'm excited to dig into metaphorical horror, if you will.
2: Shocking! I'm shocked.
0: Truly, <laughs> that, that was your me name. too. <laughs> Shocking! Everyone shocked. Well, the, like the subject and symbolism
1: of the entire film. It's like written for Rochelle, like just like Mm -hmm. underline that three times, and maybe you'll start to get the message that I think that there's definite (laughs) delicious design uh, to the the storytelling that is just for me. Um, But in addition to that, I'm obsessed with the textures in this film. I wanted to lick everything; just wanted to get right up on that wallpaper and feel the textures, the clothing, everything. Uh, I loved the dimension that was imbued into each shot. Uh, The gothic 20s circus vibe that we get from
2: Amanda's house. I, I really appreciated that. Rose Glass talks about how long that took her. And like part of the reason that this film took her almost six years to get to completion was because of how much attention she gave to all of those details. Specifically like costume and set. Yeah, I wanted to lick it
1: all. So how about nays? Reasons why film viewers may be reticent to view this film or walk away less than satisfied. I felt the plot. I felt like I knew it was going to happen, and I guess that would be my nay. Yeah, for me, with the predictability of the plot, there was an overarching narrative simplicity that for me left a hole where the back half of Act 2 should be. It's such a short film, and yet I felt it dragging. Uh, which is rough. It's rough to encounter not enough storyline to carry into the climax that pushes it into Act Three. Is really,
2: it's what I experienced. I agree with the pacing, Rochelle. It did drag a little, though. <laughs> and I love A twenty four, but I do go into their horror films knowing that they can potentially drag. For me specifically, I feel like a lot of the pacing in their horror is more of like a very slow, slow build. So I was anticipating that. And I feel like I have this name all the time when it comes to horror. I'm like, it was viscerally uncomfortable. <laughs> like I've said that. It's so many of our podcasts about horror. And I'm going to say it again. <laughs> <laughs> Here it is coming at you again. <laughs> Here it is again for me. It's kind of visceral. Kind of visceral? It depends on like what we're talking with horror. Because it's not like a blood and gore horror film. Oh,
0: I felt it was very, like, gory and bloody.
2: For, like, one second, though. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I would say arguably, like... I guess when I think, like, gore horror, it's, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre level, like...
0: Comparatively, sure.
2: This is just, like, one... I mean, the thumbtack part, too. Like, there's a couple of things she does that's, like... But, yeah, I wouldn't call it, like, gore or... Like, it's not on that. It's very, like... That's true. Light handed as far as the frequency of it, even like all that it shows, you know.
1: I found the gore, the more viscerally uncomfortable bloodshed, if you will, to be almost finely balanced with this novel concept of uh, spiritual eroticism, and that there was almost uh, a more graphic hand. In the drawing of the sexual expression of Maude's reverence, uh, relationship with the voice in her head, with her God. And I found that to be, like I said, novel, new, something I hadn't really, a delicate balance I hadn't seen applied to horror film.
2: Yeah, the only thing I could ache in it to would be the uh, Da Vinci Code. When, what is yeah. the actor's name? I love him and I never recall his name. From Knight's Tale to trudge, trudging. Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany. <laughs> that was Bam. Awesome. One word. To Bam. Trudge. 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 I saw.
0: I like saw his cute butt.
2: Yes, <laughs> I'm so proud of it. that reference. Again, <laughs> um, but he plays the like protagonist or the antagonist, excuse me, in The Da Vinci Code, and he is it chalices himself or yeah. it's like a. Like a bell apparatus that you wear up on your thigh with like spikes on the inside that you tighten for God. Absolutely, penance. I'm so, I'm,
0: penance. I'm so embarrassed. I've not seen the Da Vinci Code. Can you believe Did that? You I read only, it? I only just
1: watched it like last month, Stacey. Really? Yes. Did for either the first of you time ever. No, no, I had read
2: it. Oh my gosh, my mom and I so both fun? gobbled it. <laughs> yes. If you haven't read or watched it, read it. I'm so I'm excited for you. It. No, don't, because it's not fun to watch. It's so fun to read. Don't watch okay, it. Fine.
1: I picked up on that too, Cass. Immediately. The link with the penance when she puts her foot in the in the Yeah, shoe that's with exactly the tacks. what I thought. It was, it was
2: like, okay. Yeah. Even the corn kernels on the ground, even though that was like a light bit of it. But
0: so when I first saw the trailer, Rochelle, you were my first thought. <laughs> um written for Rochelle underlined three times yeah and so I'm I'm like yeah validating myself because I'm like yeah I called that yay for Rochelle from like a year ago I'm like Rochelle is gonna like this is Rochelle like not this is Rochelle but this Mm. this essence here Mm -hmm. really feels woven into Rochelle's essence so I'm really excited to hear more about why that is Rochelle why it was for you and you for it
2: same and I also just flat out want to know like did you like it it being for you you being for it like did that does that also mean you enjoyed the film oh what's its letterbox I
1: yeah I it wasn't the thing that's hard for me is I could see this being a film that in like film class watching and analyzing as a group and finding more and more nuggets and and exciting pieces to unearth and or to imbue it with more meaning uh, than it had in, in and of itself and then to find joy in that. Like, that's the kind of film I see this as because though the content and the subject matter is quintessentially Rochelle, uh, the handling of it uh, felt very much like not Rochelle, like someone who... Wanted very much. I felt like Rose Glass wanted very much for the audience to wonder if if Maud was actually hearing a voice from God, like if that could be a possibility. And that was never a possibility for me. No one who is actually on a mission from God wants to be on one, so it's just an automatic giveaway. So I had a hard time buying into that side. So instead, I got to look at the beautiful wallpaper. And I got to enjoy the cinematic visuals uh, and pay attention to other pieces, specifically this balance between like the ecstasy and agony or faith and fate and love and loneliness, and these kind of uh, either or a or B themes and topics that crept up
0: regularly uh, and sometimes slipped into trope. definitely yeah, it I can't help comparing it to films. Like The Baba Duke or even it follows films like that that I just I found myself thinking about. And in comparison, yeah, there is a hollowness in the story, in the writing. Um, Rose Glass is such a visionary and yeah. so wildly creative and inventive. So there's so many elements that are there and it just gets me excited to see where she's gonna go next and what she does next. But yeah, I did feel that that emptiness.
2: It seems like it was an intentional choice, but well, like it was for her to leave out all that story. You know, like that seems so obviously an intentional choice for whatever reason, which...
1: I agree. I feel like there was a fear of telling the same story or using backstory as a crutch or having it devolve into woman experiences traumatic event, woman goes crazy. And so instead the avoidance of the back the backstory led to what I thought of as a missing storyline we yeah, had like how. two instead of three or four to carry us through
2: that's how I felt as well and just curious the whole time and then yeah not like caring about mod I guess as much because they I did, I was never given a reason to
1: Right, I just very much believed that she had a mental illness and then I wondered at the handling of that and I'm excited to dive further into that. Ultimately, watching this film got me really excited thinking about all of the other debut directors that we've gotten to experience over the last year, like Rada Blank for 40-Year-Old Version, uh, Emerald Fennell, obviously, Promising Young Woman, Autumn Wild with Emma, Teresha Poe for Sella and the Spades. I haven't seen Regina King's One Night in Miami, or Baby Teeth, uh, Shannon Murphy's uh, directorial debut. But those are just a few to name. Women emerging with fantastic film, well-received film, and This film has been very well received. So I can needle it to death and it cannot live up to my expectations. But man, it definitely, like you were saying, Stacey, makes you excited to see what she does next.
0: Absolutely. And I think your point, Cassidy, about there being intention and keeping everything kind of hollow does work since we're so in Maude's mind. Mm -hmm. And it's a one track mind at this point with where she's at in her life. So, you know, I can like forgive it in some ways, if we're going to look at it from that point of view, which is really what my yay is about, is about utilizing this genre to examine something like for in this case, mental illness. Was your takeaway, just out of curiosity, did you all think that she was suicidal in the beginning? And that's what we saw in the very beginning was that she tried to hurt herself.
2: I just thought she had mental illness the whole time, not necessarily suicidal at all, but just like, yeah, I didn't I didn't anticipate the ending, I guess. And I do want to read this really quickly because it's a um, excerpt from an L.A. Times article, Los Angeles Times article by Emily Zelmer, And Rose Glass was quoted saying, what I've always really liked about cinema is how maybe more than any other medium, it allows you to put yourself into someone else's head I knew for my first film, I wanted to do something very subjective. So it was like she was super intentional about that, that that perspective view of only Maud for the entire writing and filming process.
1: And since we were so in Maud's head, I quickly came to understand that Maud was an unreliable narrator because Maud was a mystery to herself. And instead of seeing her as having suicidal ideation, when I saw the scars on her stomach, and learned a little bit more about the the tragedy that happened at work when she was a nurse at the hospital, I believe, I mostly believed that she had a darkness inside of her that she was trying not to release, that she was trying not to let out, or that she was working constantly to, to manage or maintain. And that's where I found the incorporation of Mary Magdalene as her saint to be particularly disruptive because it's holding on to an ideation of Mary Magdalene as the repentant whore. And so it's it's simplistic for me, which is hard. I saw her obviously very much more like a Joan of Arc, but you can't say Joan of Arc at the beginning because then it
0: immediately gives it away. It
2: away. So, totally gives it away. I know nothing about this because I read nothing really. Like,
0: wow. Just like burned at the, you know, like Joan of Arc, no. a flame
1: at the end. Joan of Arc believed completely that she was hearing from God. And that is how she led an army to victory at the age of like 13 years old. There are reports now that they think she had like a different form of epilepsy that gave her euphoria and self-assuredness. She dressed like a man and ultimately she would not renounce her calling. She would not wear a dress and they burned her at the stake. And Mary Magdalene is important. However you want to make her important, But in this film, she definitely, Maude's connection to her very much seemed like that darkness on the inside that everyone tells me is bad. I have to restrain it. And now I'm going to have these erotic (laughs) encounters with God, which still lets me dalliance in this natural urge within me. But I'm calling myself repentant. And so there's like the theology in that is really, there's a crunchiness to it, but there's also like an. An outdated element to it with how much more we're learning about Mary Magdalene and and her true identity so ultimately I, I think I read that Rose glass said that uh, Maud was making up her form of Christianity as she went so she didn't feel the need to do a, a lot of extra research uh, about any of these details just because Maud, was doing what Maude needed to do to survive mentally, uh, so that works for me. Uh, even if it kind of caught me off guard when I was so excited to like identify, and then you know fell
0: flat on my face. Totally, and and I never, I never got the impression that Maude was intellectually into Mary Magdalene. Like, oh she yeah, she was taking it in all on the surface. Totally. The iconography was stirring, so. She just like you said, she was constructing her her own narrative. She pieced together her own a meaningful religious experience. Mm-hmm. So it all kind of works. Like I can see how Rose Glass made it all work.
2: Yeah, it makes you know? sense to me too. Again, from that like perspective, from Maude's mind, you know, she is just trying. So it makes more sense too to like not even do the research, maybe in the writing process. So it, so like none of that is informing what Maude is making up and fabricating as she's getting deeper and deeper into her mental state.
0: And to talk about mental illness networks, you know, I did appreciate when I was sitting down thinking about my yay and and what my takeaway was, because when I when the film initially ended, I was like, what? I was kind of irritated. (laughs) And then I was like, wait a minute, hang on, cool your jets, like, just think about it for a minute. And so and I do really appreciate that locked in it's almost like an experiment or an exercise. And it just made me think about mental illness. And this film really, after sitting with it, cultivated a lot of compassion in me for people who struggle with mental illness and how we need to sit down and meet them at their level. Or at least hold that when we're when we're moving through the world and we're we encounter people that have an experience of life that doesn't make sense to us, you know. So therefore maybe it's wrong or not true, but it's this experience was true for Maude, you know, it was her life. And so that really left me thoughtful.
2: I love an ending like that. It's like Shutter Island. (laughs) You know, I love that. That's why I didn't like Hereditary that much for the reason you loved it. And it was the ending. Like you two, I feel like we're both like, I was just like immediately out. I was like, I wasted my entire time. I wasted this whole time watching this. Oh, it was a demon the whole time. Cassidy's out. I don't know why that's such a like story disconnect for me where I'm just like bored. Nope.
1: Well, and it, but it did. And we've talked about this. It gave us an opportunity to understand what it was Ari Aster was trying to get at. You know, once we got Midsommar and we had the understanding that he's like really working with the cult mentality and trying to infuse when it's, you know, embodied, a spiritual essence is embodied there and takes possession and has power. We got to see it more slowly and fully realized in Midsommar. And that was helpful for me in my appreciation and recognition of Hereditary. Still don't know what the hell's going on, but... I now understand more of where he's coming from. And I think that that's what the end scene in this film did for me a little bit as well, because what it brought to the forefront more than almost anything, the primary duality in this film is body versus mind. And as a body horror film, it works so well for me. I mean, we start with the professions that the primary women, Maud and Amanda, uh, Devote their lives to, which are their body professions. Am- Amanda is a dancer. She's a choreographer. Her body is her temple uh, in its own hedonistic way. And then we have Maud, who treats the body and is now limited in a liminal sense mentally and is trying to instead treat the soul. Ugh, yum. That is so interesting. Delicious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Slurp it up. You asked us, Stacy, if we picked up on suicidal ideation from Maude. And I'm really curious to hear what your take on just coping with death and the ultimate demise, how that plays into a factor of this film and the enjoyment and the messaging of the film.
0: I think Maude's profession as a hospice nurse comes up for me when you ask that question, Rochelle, because since we don't have the backstory, I can only assume that Maude's experience her whole world, particularly in her livelihood, is about death. She's constantly surrounded by people who are passing over. So that's like, I think that's a helpful thing to remember in filling in the gaps in the holes of the story is that Maud is constantly wading through death at every moment. That bubbled up for me and helped me connect the cues that I was seeing as far as those scars on her stomach, wondering what happened at the hospital, that trauma from earlier.
1: Amanda and Maude definitely displayed different expressions of coping with, with mortality and what that would look like. Amanda seems to just be taking everything in for the last time. Uh, and for Maude, it's like the, t- the like the clock is ticking on, on
2: Amanda's soul. Mm-hmm. But I think Amanda's scared too and that's why she decides to like partake with Maud. because there is like a gentleness and like a friendship between the two of them there for a while and I think that is like coming from her place of fear of dying and so she's like allowing exploration into Maude's world because she's scared of like what she's going through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. While just yeah like it comes back to those comparisons of like Maud doing nothing and Amanda living this like crazy, lavish, indulgent lifestyle through her final days.
0: It's easy to, to put judgment there a little bit as far as the distraction, you know, we see Amanda really maybe trying to distract herself from her own mortality. And Maude has leaned in so hard to it, to the point of insanity, which is really compelling. But she
1: definitely becomes so controlling and, is completely not okay with the different lovers that come through and sees that as an absolute waste of of Amanda's last bit of time. And that's where this savior mentality and this urge for Maud to achieve some sort of great purpose at the expense of Amanda being truly cared for or truly loved, which is oh, really, it's that's really hard to hold. Because everything's about Maud. Maud is so selfish, and she's such a caregiver at the same time. But it's like, is this profession just another form of penance?
2: I don't know. Yeah, I just think of like serial killers that have done this <laughs> when I think of Maud. Because it's true. Like people have gone on like sprees mm-hmm. because they felt. Because you know, I would assume it's not the devil. <laughs> and it's And mental illness and they you know do wild sure. acts of violence it's not maybe like a super common thing disclaimer I watch and listen to way too much true crime so
1: <laughs> did either of you find yourself surprised that Maud ended up killing Amanda
2: no my husband and I watched it together and as she was walking into Amanda's just my husband was like well she's gonna go murder her <laughs> and I was like really and he's like yeah that's what this whole movie's been leading up to, obviously. Yeah. In an article I read,
1: it sounds like Rose Glass vacillated on the point of having Maude kill Amanda. And then I'm thinking, well, what would the story have been if she didn't kill her?
2: She would have like, gone to the beach.
1: <laughs> what in the heck would have happened? She would have given her a few baths and then gone and burned herself alive. You know, like that's,
2: that's not very. That's not a very great arc. And she so, wasn't working with much of an arc anyhow. Really, it was a very sparse, like not to say she wrote a poor story or anything. It was just very like stripped down and sparse, the component she was working with.
1: I did appreciate the moment of clarity at the very end when, you know, Modest is dousing herself in saline or lighter fluid. I'm not sure. Lighter dousing. fluid. Yeah. 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 Fluid. Dousing herself in full rapture mode, and people are falling to their knees around her in her vision. And, you know, she begins to burn, and then we get to see the recognition potentially of what is actually happening. She lifts out of the fantasy and she's screaming and burning to death. I did appreciate the close-up, the way that that was framed, I appreciated knowing that it was mod. I think it was handled very well. And and it worked for me significantly. But I did read something that others have found that funny. They found the moment funny and humorous. Huh. And I love talking about the line that, that comedy films, they straddle the same line that horror films do in that they, you know, they're managing our terror every moment we're afraid of dying and By engaging in uh, anything body related, any type of body genre, we are disengaging uh, physically from that fear of death and engaging in it in a very tiny way in an escapist capacity. I did not find this last scene funny at all. Uh, No, I didn't. No, it like startled
2: me. And then I was like, what a brilliant ending. What a brilliant ending. I loved that, like, the flash of reality at the end. And I loved how it all tied together with all the... I I called that out, the flames metaphor. I was like, all right, what are we working our way towards here, Rose? So I did, like, that whole full circle moment ending in horror, too, where it wasn't ending in the fantasy, but it was like, hey, don't forget what kind of film you signed up to watch here. I could see how people found it funny because it was so unexpected. For me, I was I wasn't necessarily expecting that. I was expecting the film to end, but I wasn't expecting like a like a jump scare. Mm-hmm. I don't really remember if I found many moments throughout the film humorous either. Like, and some films walk that line through horror where like there are dark comedic moments where you're mm-hmm. like, that's kind of funny. No, um, I
0: didn't find any tension relief. Me at either, all. at
2: all. Like, no point was I, and I think I look for that too. Like, I want that, you know. So I'm always like. Mm-hmm waiting
1: i the only relief i actually felt was in the moment when her friend stops by joy what a great name and then maud doesn't end up killing her because like i really thought she might kill her in that moment for like getting in the way or getting too close Hmm. and then when joy is allowed to leave unharmed i felt relief then (laughs) that's literally i think the only relief i actually felt uh once things got got going
2: and i didn't even feel tension there I don't know. I guess I was just like Mod, so fixated on Amanda. I didn't feel tense at all throughout the whole film. (laughs) Like I honestly, like it didn't really tension build for me at all. I was just kind of like, okay, cool. We're in Mod's apartment now, and she's facing the wall, talking to her work friend. Okay.
0: (laughs) I mean, we sort of already enter in to the story when she's at this low point. It's not like we saw her up here and then descend. We were we came in at the bottom. Yeah, it's
2: that like sparseness again of the story where it's just like, well, this is what mods working with. And same to (laughs) you, audience.
0: I didn't really need the ending personally. I didn't need that flash. I felt very much like I understood what was happening. And maybe that wasn't Rose's intention to like make sure everyone understood what was going on. But I didn't find it funny. I didn't need it, though.
2: I liked it, yeah. I like celebrated it. I was like, Wing! I think I liked what oh, it did so for morbid.
1: for her identity. You know, Maud has renamed herself. Her real name is Katie. And Katie chose a name that means in old German, powerful battler. So we have this person who isn't imagining themselves on this righteous quest, uh, to redemption or or something, and it's just a seed alive in her mind that has just no bearing in reality around her. Even if she's really creating a relationship with Amanda, it it doesn't matter because Amanda's going to die. And Maude is not going to achieve
2: greatness. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Downer. (laughs) Downer. Big downer. But wrapped up in a nice little bow with a little jump scare at the end. (laughs) So there's that at least.
0: Man, you just, you've got to be mentally sturdy, I think, to work in the medical industry. Oh, no.
2: Yeah, I you would... You know,
0: especially hospice, like, that is a trip. It just sends me down this mental health spiral. There's often this idea that n- nurses sometimes have really poor health because they're worked so hard in a really mm-hmm. tough environment. And so ugh, I just have a lot of compassion for healthcare workers because they have to butt up against mortality every day and then get numb to it and then to be like oh no i'm numb to this that's a yeah. scary scary thing
2: they had her friend rose glass had her friend smoke cigarettes right she smoked cigarettes joy joy yeah because she lit a cigarette and i thought she was gonna die because maude had been oh. doing her right gasoline potions or whatever on the counter (laughs) Gasoline potions. because I remember there was tension there Rochelle I guess that was a little bit where I was like oh gosh is she gonna like light herself on fire but I think that is interesting that they had a nurse smoke because that's part of that conversation that common conversation is like a lot of nurses are heavy smokers
1: well and the the entire backstory that the trauma that Maude experienced was a real based on a real story an acquaintance, a friend of Rose Glass's who works in the medical profession and had a patient essentially explode due to complications and Glass said that the film was probably fairly tame that the friend has watched it and that they didn't have any negative reaction that the film is probably very tame compared (laughs) to the gore and reality of the actual circumstance and how so many medical uh, professionals experience PTSD and and true trauma from what they're what they're exposed to regularly, and so this could be a commentary on that as well. That it's not any discernible or specific mental illness; it's just this grandiosity of needing to rise out of of the darkness of the world and be a part of
0: something that is light, uh, and it gets really lit. Totally, it's lit. <laughs> All right. Yeah. You know, if you're not feeling something after a while, you'll be feeling something after this. I mean, that's what Maude was chasing too, you know, just feeling something. Everything was about pain and ecstasy.
1: And perhaps we're getting all of these messages in, in a stripped back form. We talked about almost the simplicity of narrative here, but you mentioned Cassidy the difference between the female lens and the male lens. And we're confronted with that pretty much more frequently now, but it still feels really new. I went back through a list of horror films, specifically horror films directed by women, and I'd seen like a couple. But I'm really not well-versed in this genre. And older films, like a lot of them have titles, including Slumber Party, or like Blood Sisters or or something very gendered, very directed at a woman making a film for women. And I'm wondering what we think about the material here and what the female lens lent itself to. Anything new? Something provocative? Or are we seeing a story that we've
2: seen before but wrapped up in a horror package? I mean, for me, I think it was more the lack of the male gaze because there's like no men in this film. Like, even character-wise, there's, like, no men. So there's, like, no... Like, it almost makes me think of um, the Sofia Coppola film that came out a couple years ago. Beguiled. Beguiled. Because that almost did it, but then they bring in Colin Farrell.
1: And give him top billing, don't even get me started. Oh, that's right. Oh, God. Fuck
2: that. (laughs) I wasn't a big fan of that film anyway, but... But I see what you're saying, Cass. So for me, it was just that. And even, like, what I had mentioned about that, like gentleness of friendship between the two even though you know it's going to turn you know as a viewer you're like this is going to turn at some point this isn't good but there was a uh, intimacy that wasn't sex right. or hot you know it wasn't it was like a female taking care i don't know there was just like a certain intimacy that i feel was achieved in their friendship relationship or love relationship however you want to speculate on that
0: yeah that resonates with me i'm, I'm imagining it now with like a man in one of those roles and how that would change the power dynamics and influence or suggest a sexual connection potentially or like a, a
2: form of like security or like you know mm-hmm. like I can overpower you mod as a man so like here you know what I, I don't know I just found sure, it yeah and it wasn't something like I mentioned when we were doing ye's and nays that I like noticed right away i read about it in that vogue article first
0: i truthfully didn't pick up on it and didn't even think about it until cassidy you had mentioned that i didn't even think for one second how there were no men i think that's potentially interesting too it just was you know it was helmed by a team of women and
2: and there are men actually there are men in that bar scene yeah there's a few in and in the, there's a few
0: that go to her house too that right. have some dialogue but they're all junky. All the guys in this are not
2: good. Yeah, they and they're are so junky. Peripheral too. You mm-hmm. know, it's just like you don't even notice them, and they have mm-hmm. no power in it too. I guess maybe that's it. There's mm-hmm. just like no power from any of those men, even at the bar. You know, because like Maude is still like
1: the instigator. Yeah, totally. Well, I agree, Cass. There is a delicacy in the handling of of bodies and movement. I think, which is what stuck out to me the most when thinking about the alternative to the male gaze, the lens itself and how when you're turning the lens on women, like how Laura Mulvey originally meant it, the the lens is the eye and what does the eye see and how does the eye tell, right? And for me, everything felt careful and small and uncertain. And I know that's because we were in Mod's head and there was a grandness to Amanda that I felt in comparison. And it was subtle. And I think that that was handled in a very specific way that I, Rose Glass definitely achieved something beautiful there in the juxtaposition of those two characters without anything lascivious or it was still very quite chaste overall. It
2: reminds me almost of going to the Naked Lady Spa <laughs> <laughs> and the type of feeling. That that gives you, especially when Maude would like rub Amanda's calves and they were doing like their yoga stuff. Again, it was like seeing intimacy on on screen that wasn't sexualized at all. Right. It was just like caring intimacy that was intimate, you know, mm-hmm. and gentle, you know, there was care there, even though Maude, yes, is like slowly but surely going in a dark direction, which yeah, I can't recall again seeing in like other, especially horror films just that like subtle gentleness that you could feel throughout their friendship part I mean even with the friend that came in to check on her you know and the fact that she didn't explode in the gasoline (laughs) I did and I find that in other like films that we watch that are not in the horror genre whatsoever that are helmed by women about female friendship they like really get it (laughs) so it's cool to just see dynamics of women written and directed by women because they just get it so it just feels. Mm-hmm. more authentic there's just a different feeling
0: yeah it's just different and it doesn't even have to have an agenda
1: <sighs> and I'm going back and forth I'm thinking about my takeaway and how I feel about this film overall and really just my own biases and expectations and, and how when they're subverted it can be positive or negative negative. and in this case I can't tell if the film struck like a personal chord or if the storytelling was just too unbelievable But, you know, only people who don't want martyrdom achieve martyrdom and anything else is ego and therefore not holy. And that overall was very difficult for me to get on board with. Ultimately, it kept me from escaping.
2: Mm.
1: And that's a huge piece from my takeaway is that I just when I watch horror, which is rare, I need for if it's going to be meaty for it to be meaty all the way. And I need to feel a sense of escapism. And that is something Ari Aster does for me very well, is the escape piece. Even in, like with Hereditary and the use of miniatures and just this divergence of space and size and time. I really appreciate that. Uh, It's something to get lost in. And here, I think that we were so close to Maude the whole time and Maude was so uncertain of Maude that it was a (laughs) hyper-realistic mental illness Phantasmagoria. Mm. And uh, Maude makes it about her. And I think that that robs the story of suspense for me.
2: Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this film just didn't like... I wanted it to hook me. and be, You know, like it's really hard sometimes when you get overly excited about trailers that are so perfect. (laughs) So it's hard for me to even walk away with much I'm excited to see more of Rose Glass. And it's not... I don't want to sound like I don't feel passionate about any takeaway because it was on her as a filmmaker or anything at all I just yeah I appreciate hospice workers I want to see more by rose glass and yeah I think Stacey you talked about like the metaphor the whole time and I have never been raised religiously I've not read the bible like I'm very ignorant with theology and so the flame metaphor like saw that or the symbolism of the flames but yeah a lot of it just kind of fell a little flat for me unfortunately and I'm bummed
0: I think that's an interesting takeaway, hearing both of your takeaways as far as the religious piece goes and how it both fell flat for you for different reasons. Because one person is coming from a place of lack of experience and the other a lot of experience. I find that interesting. I think my takeaway for this, I think I've actually developed a, more of an appreciation for this film in our conversation.
2: I love it when that happens. Mm-hmm.
0: And I appreciate your perspectives. I think that... Horror these days is trying to, to do something more and is trying to evolve in an exciting way. And maybe it's always been there. And I'm sure we could go back and find examples of, of horror like this. But to me, from what I've seen, this is just another piece of this beautiful puzzle that's being assembled. And so I appreciate Rose Glasses. Rose Glasses, you know. That's a tricky one. It is. But it's right. That's right. Rose. It's already a word. (laughs) Rose (laughs) glasses. Um, I, I appreciate the effort she took to keep it really ambiguous and open for interpretation. And for me, that was all about mental illness and just really sitting with that and validating that experience is like, this is what people are going through. And we need to remember that as we move through the world. So just lots of compassion for people with mental illness and working in an impossibly difficult field. And I'm sure we'll see more from her. The reception, like I said,
1: has been great for this film, which only bodes well for for more films to come. Being connected to A24 and Film 4 and BFI is huge. What a great collection of production companies for a directorial debut. So yay for more from Rose. And next up, we are going to get to sift through the whole year that we've experienced together this entire year of streaming in the time of COVID. Something I'm curious to unpack will be how we found viewing at home versus viewing in the theatrical, the theater experience, how we compare them, um, whether that's access to film or just the experience of being surrounded by others appreciating film alongside you. And I hope we remember to discuss this film because I think that when you're talking about horror or comedy or any body genre, you really are, you're looking at an experience that can be shared And we didn't have that on the big scale with this film or any of the other films this year. So hopefully we get to unpack that together more. Our next and final episode for season three of Talk Film Squawk will be a year in review for 2020. So we can't wait for you to join us. And we hope that you are able to get out and enjoy the beautiful sunshine in Bellingham, Washington. It's gorgeous. So hopefully it's gorgeous wherever you are as well. Many thanks once again to all healthcare professionals across the globe. You are our heroes, our literal saviors. This has been a Quarantine Style Talking to Crows production. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, follow, and honor us with that five star rating.